Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week we heard from Tommy Luby, a scientist and entrepreneur who works with universities in Europe to identify promising research in the field of cybersecurity. This week we hear from an investor who dispenses advice to startups about how to overcome regulatory hurdles. And what's kind of crazy is, you know, I've learned now that it's easier to get people to advocate on behalf of a for-profit company they like politically than it is to get them to vote in their own interests. That was Bradley Tusk, an investor and political advisor to Uber. He spoke to the FT's Leslie Hook about the highs and lows of the ride-sharing company's rapid expansion. I first sat down with Bradley to record this podcast at the end of 2016, but we thought we would update that interview because I wanted to hear his views as an advisor to Uber on the damaging revelations that have surfaced about the company in recent weeks. These started when a former Uber engineer went public with allegations of sexual harassment inside the company and continued with the publication of an embarrassing dashcam video of Uber's chief executive, Travis Kalanick, berating an Uber driver who complained about fare cuts. Mr. Kalanick later apologized. On top of all of this was the revelation of Greyball, a secret program Uber used to mislead regulators about the location of its cars. Bradley, thank you so much for joining me today. You know, what do you make of the events of the last couple weeks? Do you come away from these events feeling differently about your confidence level for Uber's future? You know, look, I don't think anyone who's an investor in Uber or an employee or a fan of Uber is happy with the last few weeks. But if we can take the events of the last few weeks and make some really fundamental changes to the company, long term, it could be a much stronger, much better company than it is right now. So the last few weeks have the potential to be the impetus for change that helps company for the next 10 years, or it could be something that really, you know, reveals long term problems. Uh, what I see based on my you know, conversations internally is a company that is taking these problems very seriously, that really is looking to bring in uh, additional management, additional structure, changes to the culture. And so if, if what I've seen over the last couple of weeks in terms of the way they're handling it is an indication of what's to come, ultimately, this will probably help the company long term. And do you think Travis is the right person to continue steering the ship? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. Look, fu- fundamentally, Travis is Uber and Uber is Travis. You know, why Uber is such a successful company is because it is so relentlessly focused on innovation at every single turn. That is directly the result of Travis, his passion, his intensity, who he is. And so, you know, there's lots and lots of well-run, well-intentioned companies that aren't all that successful because they don't have the edge and the relentlessness and passion of Travis and Uber. So we need to keep that, which clearly means Travis at the helm, but also add in people who can bring different perspectives, more management stability, more experience, and a better emphasis on culture as well. That's surrounding Travis with a COO and other people. And you're referring there, just for our listeners, to Travis's statement that he was, in fact, uh, planning to hire a COO to uh, kind of be his right-hand man or right-hand woman, as the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that you'll see not just that, but other people over time come in as well to help be people who, A, have the independence to offer 
their point of view and, and not be afraid to do that and have it taken seriously. And B, people who have different experiences at different companies and different institutions and, and can bring you know good aspects of other cultures into Uber. So, so now that the administration has been in power for a couple of weeks, what do you expect out of the Department of Transportation in terms of things that could impact the ride-sharing industry? You know, look, I think that if left to their own devices, the Department of Transportation will do a good job in advancing ride-sharing, autonomous cars, autonomous trucks, the way we can use drones effectively, you know, which are all things of which they have some level of jurisdiction, both because the agency was, was good about all of this under Obama and Elaine Chao is a very solid appointment. The concern that I have is the leadership from the very top in the White House because any cabinet agency you know, still operates at the beck and call of the president. And the instability we've seen out of this White House is so shocking that while DOT in and of itself should be able to do a good job on these issues, you know, no one can predict what's going to come out of Trump's mouth or off his fingers onto Twitter or Steve Bannon's head or anyone else. And so I, I have confidence in DOT. I do not have confidence in this president. And how do you think Uber's self-driving research could play into or, or be impacted by President Trump's focus on jobs, which has been a big theme. Are you worried? No, I mean, I, th- I think that old, right now, the the research is not going to be you know impacted by Trump either way, other than you could see Trump generally not funding research for new innovation across the board, which would be incredibly devastating for the American economy long term. You know, most of the political debate around autonomous vehicles is happening at the state and local level. And I think you'll see that continue, whether it's a city like Pittsburgh or San Francisco or a state like Arizona. Um, So that'll be ongoing. Uh, For the federal government to really step in and issue major new rules or regulations will take a while because they move so slowly on everything. And so I I don't think it's going to have any short-term impact if Trump happens to serve for eight years and really says, I want to make sure that autonomous vehicles never happen. You know, I suspect the power of the federal government is significant enough to slow it down. But, you know, I don't think he'll do that. I don't think it'll have any real impact. But like I said earlier, anyone who thinks they know what's going to come out of this president, you know, is, is foolish at best. Here's the rest of my initial interview with Bradley. Now, you are an investor in Uber and a consultant to Uber, and you have a background in politics. You're a campaign manager for Michael Bloomberg. How did you get involved with Uber yeah, in the first place? I mean, so I was sitting in a meeting after Bloomberg campaign. I started a consulting firm working with lots of big different companies, you know, the Walmarts and Comcast and Pepsis of the world, dealing with lots of different kind of political and regulatory challenges they had all over the country. We'd run campaigns in lots of different states at the same time. And I'm sitting in a Walmart meeting, and the phone rings, and I step out and take the call, and it's a friend of mine, and he says, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? I said, yeah, sure. And uh, you know, later that day, I become Uber's first consultant, and I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, hey, we can't really afford your fee. Would you take some equity? And I said, thank God. I said, yes. And that was kind of early 2011. And I've been kind of helping them fight the taxi industry ever since. You know, we started off in New York. They had just come to New York at that point and had gotten a cease and desist letter from the local taxi limousine commission, who really thought that Uber was more of a traditional transportation base. We were able to show them that Uber was really a technology company that was a platform that connects drivers and riders. And then that worked out pretty well. And Travis said, can you do this anywhere else? And I said, yeah, we work all over the country. And Next thing I knew, we were handling Boston and Philly and Chicago and D.C. and Denver and L.A. and so on. And so 
you know, been working with them ever since. And then about a year and change ago, Uber had a particularly big fight back here in New York again with the, well, de Blasio become the mayor after Bloomberg. And de Blasio had put forward a proposal that was written by the tax industry that would have limited Uber's growth to 1% a year, which is probably not even constitutional, but nonetheless thought was it was going to pass on the city council because the mayor typically controls the city council. And we ran a very, very aggressive campaign to beat it back. And um, that was the one with the, the de Blasio correct. button, yeah, right? Yeah, the cool gimmick of the campaign was, you know, along with UberX and Uber Black and whatever else, one of your options was de Blasio, and it was 25-minute wait time. But most importantly, it then linked you to a way to advocate politically against the legislation. And what's kind of crazy is, you know, I've learned now that it's easier to get people to advocate on behalf of a for-profit company they like politically than it is to get them to vote in their own interests. And that's why we've actually launched an initiative around trying to make mobile voting happen because, you know, if you make it easy for people to advocate because they push a few buttons on their phone, they'll do so. If they have to go somewhere, you know, not going to happen. And so we won this campaign and kind of there's that adage, you can't fight City Hall, but we did and we won. And it got a lot of attention. I said, you know what? I, I love what I'm doing with startups. I'm really lucky that because of my equity in Uber, I have a lot of personal financial flexibility rather than just doing this with Uber and then otherwise doing what kind of big Fortune 500 companies for cash. What if I launched a much bigger business around this? So launched a business that works now with a couple of dozen startups in pre-IPO status who are in different regulated industries and have a host of political, regulatory, media challenges and we help them work through them. We do it in return for equity, and that's our business. No, I mean Uber's hallmark, you know, approach to regulation has been sort of ask for forgiveness rather than permission, and they have a reputation of being really aggressive. And I think the De Blasio button was a real example of that sort of, you know, gloves off approach. But there's some markets where that's worked less well for yeah, them. I mean, if we look at Germany, if we look, and also like the goodwill that's been lost. I mean, do you think they're coming to a point where it was time for Uber to show like a kinder, gentler well, side? I mean, a few things. I think one is the reputation for that and the reality aren't necessarily the same. I think Uber has always known how to, at least in my time with them, which has been ever since they entered their second market, unafraid to fight, but also unafraid to reach an agreement. I think for every one fight that you guys cover, there's 10 agreements with cities that you don't even realize occurred because all sides were able to work together on a compromise on whatever issue there was. So I think ultimately there's a lot less fighting than, than you might think. But at the same time, Uber's not afraid to. And I think Uber also knows that when you win a fight against a really unfair regulation, it has a chilling effect on bad regulation elsewhere. And that New York City fight was very much emblematic of that. So one is, you know, I think there's probably a little less fighting than, than people might might think. Two is, you know, Uber's in a very unique position from kind of a government relations standpoint, which is they have a product of which the incumbent exists in every single market in the world. There's no place in the world that has some version of a taxi. It might be a really advanced taxi. It might be a really rudimentary taxi, but taxi exists everywhere. And it's pretty much awful everywhere. Right, So pretty much in every single city around the world, one thing everyone has in common is people kind of hate their local cabs. Um, they tend to be dirty and the drivers tend to often be not that friendly and they're overpriced. And so when Uber comes to town, Uber has a product that works you know, reliably pretty well in the sense that you can summon it from your phone, basically arrives when it's supposed to, costs what they say it's going to cost. The juxtaposition between what Uber has to offer and what people are used to with their taxi is so significant that in this case, 
if you show people, hey, here's a better way to do it, here's an alternative, in any small de-democratic society where the rule of law exists, they will ultimately demand it and make it happen, right? You can't use that strategy for any, everything or even for most startups. But in this one case where people already pretty much universally, just about everybody's been in some sort of taxi at least once. So everybody knows the incumbent and the status quo. Everybody wants something better. You give them something better. As long as the people have a say in how they're governed, you will ultimately be okay. Because I feel like all the time CEOs are saying to me, well, should I, should I beg for forgiveness or ask for permission? And my answer is always, it depends, right? Depends on what it is you're begging for forgiveness for having done. You know, if you're begging for forgiveness because you had the wrong license plate, that's one thing. If you're begging a U.S. attorney for forgiveness and trying to avoid criminal prosecution, that's another thing, right? Um, so it depends on the jurisdiction you're in, who the incumbents are, what it is you're doing, how important it is overall to your entire business. You know, it's really very context dependent. And there aren't that many examples like Uber where you know that if you give people, you know, the opportunity to try it and you show them the contrast, they're going to demand it. And by the way, that strategy, as you said, for Uber only works in sort of democratic societies where there's no rule of law or, you know, any autocratic society. You can't pull that, right? Because it only works for the people can demand something and then see it happen. And in much of the world, that's that's how things work, but not everywhere. But there are examples too, like Germany, clearly a democracy where, you know, several Uber services have been banned yeah. and it exists only in limited forms. And that's right. But that's, you know, that's the kind of up and down. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Count of the process, you know, at any given moment, you're going to have regulators that don't like things to change. You're going to have regulators who are in the pocket of the industries that they govern. That's why the phrase regulatory capture exists. You're going to have taxi industries who give lots of political contributions to local elected officials who, at least for a time, do their bidding. Um, so you're going to have all kinds of skirmishes, but at the end of the day, you know, Uber pretty much always is able to operate long term just about anywhere because, you know, it's very hard to say to the public, we know there's a much better way to do this, but because we don't like change or because we're taking contributions from the other guys, we're not going to let you have it. So do I think ultimately Uber will run everywhere in Germany and France and everywhere else? I do. I think the EU, you know, tends to be a heavier hand in terms of regulation, so it may be harder, it may take longer, but ultimately, you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't put it back in. Now, there have been a lot of landmark cases involving the status of Uber drivers. Yep. You know, in California, we've had different efforts to settle this this case with drivers who say, look, we're actually employees, we're not independent contractors. We also had a similar case in the UK. How do you think this issue is ultimately going to play out, and will it threaten Uber's business model no, if countries I mean- decide that these drivers should get full employee rights. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Ultimately, you know, this really, again, domestically shouldn't be decided on a state-by-state basis. We're talking about questions of the federal tax code, right? Right now, the federal tax code says you can be 
an independent contractor or you can be a full-time employee. And though that code was written long before sort of the sharing economy was created, and clearly the fact that there are tens and tens and tens, hundreds of thousands of people who are participating in the sharing economy um, for Uber alone, I think it's a pretty clear sign that there are a lot of people who want the flexibility of being an independent contractor but still may want workers' comp or disability or health care or whatever it is. And the current law just doesn't really account for the way that today's the modern workforce you know, functions. And so I think you will see efforts both in Washington and in states around the country to try to create a third way that sits between 1099 and W-2. 1099 being I'm sorry, independent, independent contractors. contractors. W-2 means full-time employees. Those are the codes within the IRS code. And ultimately, I think a lot of people want that kind of status where they can say, hey, I want the flexibility of working when I want, where I want, how I want. And I want benefits. And right now, the problem is companies like Uber aren't actually legally allowed to do that, right, without then being declared to be full-time employers. And so I think the effort that you'll see is sharing economy companies trying to give their workers benefits, ironically, in some cases, labor unions opposing it because they're worried that if people can have the flexibility of being independent contractors and get benefits – why would anyone become you know, a full-time employee and join a union? And so you'll see an interesting wedge sort of in the progressive world where from a progressive kind of what's good for workers standpoint, this new classification makes a lot of sense because it gives people a lot of opportunity they wouldn't have otherwise. And yet some of the people who are usually seen as the protectors of progressive values like labor unions may be opposed to it because it's really not good for their own individual status. So it'll be an interesting fight to watch in But why would it be in Uber's interest to start paying drivers health benefits or helping them save for retirement? I mean, that would just be additional cost. Yeah, but it also, lots of people invest in their workforce in a lot of ways all the time, right? I pay 100% of all my employees' benefits, all of their health care, all of their other costs, dental, vision, high 401k match. Why do I do that? Because I really value having loyal employees and high retention rates and the ability to recruit and attract who I want for talent. And in any competitive economy, you know, whether people are independent contractors or full-time employees, you know, employers are competing for talent, right, of any kind, whether it's the people who work for me making investments in startups or people driving Ubers. And so I think the reason why companies are doing it is for the economic reason that they can ultimately have the kind of workforce they want if they can give people certain types of benefits. So you think Uber would want to provide driver benefits? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm not authorized to speak for Uber, but I think generally speaking, the sharing economy across the board, there is a real interest by the companies in saying, how can we be allowed to provide certain types of benefits? And how can we allow to do certain things that are traditionally associated with full-time employers without eliminating the independent contractor status of the people who work with us, right? And that's the real question, and it's partly kind of a technical issue, but it's also a big political question, and it's recognizing that the economy has really shifted, and people don't work, you know, in the same job for 40 years and go in every day at 9 and come home every day at 5, and, you know, that type of traditional leave-it-to-beaver way of life doesn't exist anymore, and it's time the tax code reflects the workforce and the economy that we live in. So how will this change come about? Is this going to be legislation that introduced in Congress? Is that something you guys are actively working on? So I think it's, it's something that, that we as a consulting firm and as, as a venture capital fund uh, are working on and thinking about for a variety of our portfolio companies. And I think that you'll see, without getting into too much detail, you'll see legislation move forward in different states around the country in 2017. And I suspect you'll see something in Congress as well. Um, you're clearly going to see 
tax reform move in Congress, regardless of this issue one way or the other. I don't know what will be in it. I don't know what will pass. But I think um, it's pretty clear that both the president, the speaker, and the Senate majority leader all intend to do something and have the votes to do it. And that would be the legislative vehicle by which to try to bring about some sort of new classification in the federal tax code as well. And so I think that it would be logical to you know, at least consider opportunities to do that. There have been not just with Uber, but also with Airbnb, which has faced higher fines here in New York and suing the state of San Francisco. I mean, with Uber and Airbnb, these two sort of beacons of the sharing economy, they've faced growing regulatory backlash. Do you think we'll look back on 2016 as kind of the year that regulators woke up to no, the I mean, economy? It's funny. I think it's maybe less regulators and it's more the year that those being disrupted woke up and said, holy shit. What am I? Uh, what am I doing here? I got to fight back, right? And I think for the first couple of years, companies like Uber and Airbnb, because they were so nimble and so agile, and because these trends interests were so slow and so bureaucratic, had a lot of room to run without anyone necessarily noticing and doing anything about it. And you know, when you say to someone, "I'm going to take away your business and your market share," they don't say, "Thanks so much. I'm so glad you're disrupting me." They punch back, right? That's that's what business is, right? You have multiple companies competing for share of, of the economic spend by, by their customers. And everyone uses every advantage they have. And sometimes that's marketing and advertising. Sometimes that's by offering the lowest prices. And sometimes that's a regulatory fight. And I think whether it's hotels or taxi medallion owners or casinos or whoever it is, you know, any industry that's finding themselves disrupted is now using whatever they can in the political arena to fight back. And that's fine. That's what democracy is. They're trying to get their point of view out there. But ultimately, I think the role that we try to play in the marketplace is to stand up to a lot of those entrenched interests so that startups can continue to innovate, continue to do things differently, and aren't shut down for really bad political and regulatory reasons. Now, has has Uber's and Airbnb's approach had to change as they get bigger? I mean, your advice to Travis in 2011 when Uber was tiny might be different from your advice now, and what does that shift you know, look I, like? I think, at least from an Uber perspective, because I haven't worked with Airbnb, I think it's Uber has grown into a pretty big company, right? It's, it's still a startup. It's not a public company, but it's a very big company. It's bigger than a lot of public companies. And I think that the company has grown and built an infrastructure to deal with that. In the very early days, the kind of the government relations department was like me. Right, sitting in a conference room table in my tiny little office back then in New York with Travis figuring stuff out. There's now God, there was a couple hundred people doing that at Uber, right? So and that's okay. That that's how the evolution works for companies over time. And look, at some point you're seeing this right now, there are all kinds of new ride sharing startups trying to disrupt Uber, right? You see that with Airbnb. You see I mean you know, you now have startups disrupting startups. That's okay. That's that's the way it works. So, you know, these companies have to evolve and they probably get more conservative in some ways over time because they kind of act more and more like a traditional public company. I think one of the cool things about Uber is from a technological standpoint, it's still unbelievably innovative, right? The autonomous vehicles, they purchased auto, which is definitely the furthest along in autonomous trucking. You know, they're talking literally about creating flying cars, which we've been waiting for for a long time now. You know, Uber is, is definitely, I think, while probably a lot more sophisticated and methodical about its government relations practices in a good way. At the same time, you know, they're still innovating like crazy. You know, Airbnb, I think, took a little longer to get to that conclusion. And I think some of the problems you see that they have right now in New York, San Francisco, Berlin, Amsterdam, Barcelona are all the product of, you know, them being very focused on building out their business, building out their brand, getting hosts, getting customers, doing all kinds of things that they should be doing, but maybe a little bit 
um, whereas Uber had to deal with regulatory issues and therefore has been sort of working on them, sometimes fighting, sometimes cooperating, but either way dealing with them now from day one. I think Airbnb ignored them for a long time and is now trying to catch up. And they're seeing some of the downside of that. You know, for example, their their law that was signed into New York, which effectively makes Airbnb in the way that you and I know it illegal in New York City. And, you know, while Airbnb will say, hey, it's only 2%, 3% of our total revenue, you know, this is not Sydney. This is not Stockholm. This is the global media capital of the world. This is the global financial capital of the world. This is a bad place to be operating illegally. And they're in a bind because there is, from a political standpoint, not an easy solution for them to overturn this law in the near future. And it may not impact their revenue picture by that much, but much of the valuation of a startup is the perception of what it can be, the hope in what it can be, projections for what it can be. And if there's one place that can really impact that perception a lot, it's New York more than any other city in the world. So, you know, they're in for a rough patch ahead. Now, as an investor in Uber, at some point, you will also have some kind of exit, if that's maybe an IPO. I really hope so. (laughs) You're hoping for the IPO. From a regulatory perspective, does Uber need to solve some of these key regulatory issues, like the labor issue, before an IPO No, I I mean, look, that's ultimately obviously a better question for Travis than it is for me, but... Any company that is constantly innovating and changing as much as Uber is, is always going to have a whole host of regulatory challenges and issues because every time you do something new, all kinds of new stuff comes with it, right? So when you go to autonomous vehicles, a whole host, we're discussing of different regulatory issues come into play. Autonomous trucking, same issue. Whenever flying cars happens, I can only begin to imagine the regulatory issues we're going to have around that. So, like, by definition, when people are investing in Uber, they're investing in much in Uber's ability to constantly innovate and come up with new products and new ideas and actually execute on them. And and by definition, every time you do that, you're inviting a whole host of new regulatory issues and fights and problems, and you're disrupting somebody else who gets upset and they start fighting back. So, you know, unless you wanted Uber to just to sort of shut down and only be one thing for eternity, it's never going to solve all of its regulatory issues. It's always going to have new ones. And I think the first person to say that's great is Travis because that means that they're constantly doing new things, and that's why he's there. So in other words, Uber's regulatory issues might not disappear anytime soon. For as long as Uber continues to be really innovative and really keep shaking things up, you know, they're always going to have fights on their hands. Always fights on their hands. So there'll be lots for you to do. Well, thank yeah, you so much, Bradley. Hey, thanks for having me. Next week, we'll hear from Rutger Bregman, the Dutch author of Utopia for Realists, who spoke to me recently about how societies can deal with unemployment resulting from tech disruption and how a universal basic income might be the answer. If you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.